You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. Let's do this. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. It is Friday, which means you've got questions, we've got answers. Anything appropriate for Christian radio that relates to the Line of Fire, by all means, call friend and foe alike, biblical, theological, cultural, Hebrew, Israel, whatever, anything we cover, talk about at all on the air. If you read one of my articles, watched a video, you have a question, you have a difference, by all means, give us a call The earlier in the broadcast you call, the better chance we have of getting to your call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's start in Arlington, Texas with Chris. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, Hello, Dr. Brown. Um, Hello. uh, Yeah, hello. My my question is actually from uh, Joshua chapter 6 in the fourth verse where it says, Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark on the seventh day march around the city seven times with mm-hmm. the priest blowing the trumpet yep. and then in verse 15 it says on the seventh day they got up at, uh, at daybreak and marched around the city seven times yep. in the same manner except that on that day they circled seven times and you know uh well my question uh pretty much is about uh the sabbath and uh being that the sabbath the sabbath um, was the commandment to keep the Sabbath day, which was the seventh day holy. Would God allow it, or, or was this a um, a break of that commandment, even though God gave them the command to march around the city, and he also uh, commanded the Israelites to um, honor the Sabbath, which is also a ceasing of uh, work? Um, if, if not, can you clarify that for me, please? Yeah, I, I love the question. It's a very logical question. So first, uh, we're not to assume that the seventh day was the Sabbath. In, in other words, that the day that they blew the trumpets, uh, sounded the shofars, and the walls came down and they plundered the city and went to war, that that was the seventh day of the week. It was just the seventh day in that cycle. But one of those days, they were marching, right? One of those days had to be the Sabbath, uh, So because it's seven straight days. So one of those seven days had to be the Sabbath. So the two answers would be, it was not a violation of the Sabbath to obey God and march around the city. That was not considered work, Uh, and that's why God commanded them. The other thing that you might deduce from it is that in times of war, that you can fight on the Sabbath, that it is right to protect yourself or to defend life or to fight on the Sabbath. Since this was something being done by divine directive, in other words, they weren't being attacked, they, they weren't fighting back then you would simply have to deduce that it was not considered work to get up and march around the city. That work would be going into the, the field and, and harvesting your crops and, and plowing with your oxen and, and chopping down trees and gathering wood. That would be, you know, washing your clothes. That would be considered work. But to march around the city uh, in silent worship, that would not be considered worship. Uh, excuse me, that would not be considered work. 
By later rabbinic tradition, it would be because you couldn't carry and certain things like that on the Sabbath. But that would be the simplest explanation. In my thinking, it would it would not have been the Sabbath day that was the seventh day when they went in to plunder the city because now they're actually engaging in war and they're doing things and they're they're you know they're they're working on a day they didn't have to. But simple thing is to march around the city wasn't considered work and therefore it wasn't a violation of the Sabbath. Okay, thank you for uh, the clarity. I, I did happen to look up the meaning of the word seventh in Hebrew, and it, it's a different um, Hebrew word than um, uh, Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for Sabbath. So I, I just wanted some clarification. That just, that was just yeah, yeah, and, and of course, right, the word for seventh is not the word for, for Sabbath. Sabbath is Shabbat, and it's the cessation of, of labor uh, that's emphasized in the word Shabbat. But yeah, it's it's a great question because they had to they had to march. Now, normally you wouldn't go out of a certain area on the Sabbath for travel, so that would keep you more homebound and things like that. But by divine command, you could obviously do that. There's a great principle that comes from that in terms of God is ultimately the one who determines uh, how to observe His days. So it's a good question. Eight six six three four truth. And by the way. Normally when we start the show, every line is filled and it can be challenging to get through. Every so often, we've got a little bit more opening right at the beginning. So now is a great time to call 866-348-7884. Especially, we, we always get a lot of calls from our YouTube viewers, but we are still banned from live streaming on YouTube. We've got one more day. I think tomorrow we can start live streaming on YouTube again because they gave us a complete bogus strike for no legitimate reason. And the appeal process is worthless to put an appeal, they immediately decline it, can't say why they did, and you can't appeal to go deeper. Anyway, so that's the reality. So we're live streaming on Facebook, and then you're listening on radio, and then some listening afterwards on podcast. But if you're listening on podcast, unless you can figure out a way like three days later how to call retroactively, you, you can't call into a live show. All right, let us go to Michelle in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi. Hello. Okay. Nice, nice talking to you. Um, I've been listening to you for the last couple of months. My uh, my pastor actually recommended me to listen to you and challenged me to find you saying that we as Christians can celebrate the biblical feast. And ah. it, it's caused issues and it's caused problems in the church. And um, it, it, as of yesterday, I tried calling yesterday and it was Jewish Thursday, but I, I don't think they totally got the story. But anyways, I I talked to the pastor yesterday and showed him your video where you were talking to two other guys. Um, I forget what channel it was. But you were talking about the biblical feast. And I've been trying to do these for the last three three years. I, I read in the Bible. It said this. I you know I started from the beginning, went to the end. And I, I wanted something. And I learned about the, the paganism and, and Christmas and Easter and the name of Easter. And it was it was almost like a slap in the face to God to me to celebrate Easter or call it Easter. It's Passover. And so I've been doing that in children. I've been teaching children's church on Sundays, and we've been celebrating the biblical feast. And we, we don't do anything ritualistic or anything. We, we try to do a Seder plate with the fun stuff the kids like to eat, and we put horseradish and stuff like that on there. But it, it's caused a problem, I guess, over the years, and I haven't really heard the backlash so recently. And pretty much I got told to stop teaching these things, stop celebrating the biblical feast. And I have to do stuff for Christmas. I have to do stuff for Easter. 
and and all that. And it was like, okay, you know, I, maybe I just I need to go to a different church. So it came down yesterday where I got told that, and I resigned. So this morning I went and cleaned all my stuff out of there. And I'm still, I'm still hurt, and so I, I just don't know where to go because I'm, I don't know if I'm Jewish. I don't think I'm Jewish. There's no past history of being Jewish, but I don't feel like I fit in with the Christians either. It, it doesn't feel like that's me. And there's, I looked up like Jewish, Jewish messianic churches around here. There's one that's about a half hour away. That's not too bad. But I, and I went there for a couple of the, the things that they've done. I snuck away and went and checked it out, and I, I like it. They don't offer a lot for the kids. Like, it's just that one day that they meet and everything like that. And that's always been my part, the children's ministries. And that's kind of how I came to know Jesus or Yeshua. I I went to him after I went to right, so, school. Right, so, yes, yeah, so, Michelle, here's here's what I recommend. I okay, so uh, I'm, I'm sorry you've been through these struggles, and you're not the only one. So a, a few things. Oh, okay? I know, and I've reached out and seen a bunch of people on YouTube saying the same thing. So I don't feel right, right. alone now, at least. Yeah, yeah okay, a, a, a few things. First is that as long as it's up to you, you don't want it to, you don't want it to, to divide over this, okay? Um, if, if your pastor—look, you always have to submit to the leadership of the congregation in terms of their wishes and their desires. And if, if you can't, then you go somewhere else. I mean, that's just a given, whether the person's right or wrong, that's that they're given the responsibilities leadership, and it's and it's right to submit to their leadership and to honor it. So if you have a difference and you can persuade them of your viewpoint, and you feel it's important to hold your viewpoint, then you respectfully resign and and move on. But you don't divide you you don't uh, divide as brothers and sisters over these issues. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is, right. I, I would not. I know there's teaching about paganism and Christmas and Easter, but a, a lot of that is extreme. In other words, even the name Easter and where it comes from, look, is, is it pagan to refer to Thursday as Thor's Day, okay, or Monday as Moon Day, or, you know, the different pagan names for days of the week? Right. Right. And so we, the we thing is, the, right, right. The point, the point is that those that celebrate Easter even call it that. It has nothing to do with Ishtar. It has, not, it, it has to do with the time of the year, and that word was just used for that time of the year, just like Thursday is how we designate the, 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 uh, the fifth day of the week, all right? It has nothing to do with Thor. So don't overreact. When Christians come together for Easter, it's one thing if the whole thing is about Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and, and ridiculous stuff like that. It's well, another and that's thing the if, thing that's being pushed on the church. Right, right, they, right. They so want that, to bring in the Easter bunny. They want to bring in Santa Claus. And right, right, right. So that stuff, I'd have not, right. I'd have zero to do with. I'd be out of there in a heartbeat with that. In a heartbeat, okay. If there was a big emphasis or a Santa Claus, I'd be out of there in a heartbeat with, with, without a problem, okay. Um, but that's different from Christians saying, "Hey, Easter is when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's what it's all about to us." Or Christmas is when we celebrate his birth and we love to sing the hymns and it's kind of a special time for our family. Okay, wonderful. I'm not, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Christians can't do that. But if you say, hey, look, the first believers followed the biblical calendar and Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 5, you know, keep the Passover. Here's what I would do if I were you. I would find a church that, that you felt more at home with and weren't in conflict with leaders over. Okay, and I don't, I don't know your pastor. I appreciate him encourage you to to, uh, to check out the broadcast. But I'd encourage you to find a church where you can throw yourself in, be in harmony with the folks, uh, major on the majors. But then uh, 
celebrate with a Messianic Jewish congregation when it comes to the biblical calendar. That, in other words, you can do both. You can say, hey, I love going to this Messianic congregation, which many people do. Boy, I love the way they, they celebrate Passover and incorporate Messiah's death and resurrection in there. Or, boy, I, I love tabernacle celebration. I think that's really neat. So you participate with them for those things and you know, bless them with an offering while you're there in appreciation like you do in any congregation. But then you have another church that you're part of with children's ministry and all the things you throw yourself in. And, and there, you know, there are plenty of good churches, congregations all over. So you, you, you're there, but if they don't have the same view of, of the biblical calendar, then celebrate that with a Messianic congregation and um, be at home in the larger body, which is very diverse with many different expressions. But it's for Easter eggs and Santa Claus, especially Santa Claus. Come on. All right. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. So it is November 1st, just checking, yes, it is, which means that the Job commentary is officially released. Now, I've got a stack uh, in the office next to me in, in my, my office where I've got some of my library, and all those books will be signed early next week and sent out, so we can't wait to get the copies out to you. And then you get a free audio download where I explain how Job spoke rightly about God, Job 42.7. But for those who are waiting for the Kindle ebook, it costs about the same as, as the physical book, by the way. I don't set those prices, but uh, that is available on Amazon. Now, for those who are waiting for that, it is available now that the book is officially out. And as soon as you get your copy... Maybe you got them at the Apologetics Conference recently and, and you've gotten into it already. Post a review on Amazon. doesn't matter where you buy it, but post a review on Amazon and, and let folks know if you were blessed by it, if you were helped by it. Uh, I, I trust you will be. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jonathan in Washington. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, uh, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. Sure thing. So uh, my call, uh, my question was about the. So I have this relative who, um, uh, whose name will not be given for self-explanatory reasons, uh, who is um, living with her with her boyfriend, right? And she's been that way for a while. But uh, according to her, it's not sinful because they're not fornicating. What would you? Um, how how would you respond to that? Right. So. We all agree that to have sex outside of wedlock is sinful. We all agree with Scripture on that. It's quite plain. So if you're married and have sex with someone you're not married to, that's adultery. If you have sex outside of wedlock, so a boyfriend, girlfriend together, that's fornication. Both are forbidden in God's sight. So she's saying, well, it's okay because we're not fornicating. Uh, The first thing I would wonder about is, okay— uh, are you not setting yourself up for temptation? If you're telling me that you are in a committed relationship with this person, you're obviously romantically attracted to this person, I imagine sexually attracted to this person, you're saying you're not having sex. What, uh, so I would, I would question that up front as to whether that's real. And then second, 
if you say, okay, you're not having sex, do you mean a particular type of sex? Are you engaging in all kinds of sexual activity? If so, then it's wrong. It's sinful. It shouldn't be happening. You say, no, no, no. I mean, we don't even kiss. I would doubt that. We don't even kiss. Well, then you're still setting yourself for, for temptation. And at the very least, even if you're not, you are giving an appearance which is going to encourage others to sin because everyone just sees the outward that you two are living together and that you're sharing uh, – here, I mean, you're saying you don't share the same bed and the same bedroom? So Well, well uh, they, 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 do, they do kiss and they do share the same bed, but they, they, they say that they don't actually do anything, um, like they don't have any sexual relations according to them. Yeah, so I, I I highly question it. Number one, and and number two, the marriage bed sharing a bed, okay, is is for a married couple. That's why it's referred to as the marriage bed, as in Hebrews thirteen. You don't share the bed with with someone that you're going to marry in the future. That waits for that time. And I can almost guarantee there's other type of sexual activity beyond kissing, and therefore they're in, they're crossing lines. And they're definitely doing wrong. Not only so, anyone else looking at that, and here's our bedroom. Friends, do friends come over there? Here's our bedroom. Oh, but we don't do so. Oh, yeah. So now others are going to follow suit like that? And, oh, well, it's okay for them. I guess it's okay for us. We'll share a bedroom too. Right. So it's a bad example, bad appearance, and almost guaranteed some levels of bad activity going on. They got no business doing it. And if they really want to honor the Lord, get married. Get married or don't get married, either in or out. But to me, that's just playing games, dangerous games, and certainly not right in God's sight. So that's my viewpoint, sir. All right. Thank you for your... um, Oh, before you go, I actually wanted to... I was reading about your Job commentary, which it looks very exciting. Um, I, I... it says it has something about the the chaos monsters. What is that? Yeah, uh, so at the end of the book of Job, it, uh, the Lord speaks about behemoth and Leviathan. Is that the crocodile and the hippo? I'm going to get into that on a show next week, by the way. Dig into Job some more. Is it crocodile and hippo? Is it Or hippo and crocodile, I should say. Is it dinosaur, if you had a young earth theory? Uh, is it demonic powers? My understanding is, well, first, elsewhere in Job, you have references to clear demonic powers that are referenced. Some think that the monsters at the end of the book of Job or the creatures at the end of the book of Job are just demons. I don't believe that's the case. I believe that they are physical creatures, perhaps extinct now, but so, some type of physical creatures that also represented demonic powers. So they were earthly, but with a a demonic association, and that was what God was displaying his mastery over. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Jeremy in Montana. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, I've called before, and I I always want to say how much I appreciate uh, your fellowship with uh, Dr. James White and and some of the others, like Apologia Church. I love love seeing the unity uh, and the brotherhood there. Uh, 
And my question is kind of pertaining to that. I know you were on an episode of uh, Apologia Radio. It might have been the next week with Jeff Durbin. I'm not certain. But you were um, promoting your book, uh, Jezebel's War with America. Mm-hmm. And my question, it's kind of along the lines of abortion. Uh, have you seen or do you plan on seeing Marcus Pittman's um, documentary, Babies Are Still Murdered Here? And uh, it points out the weaknesses in the pro-life movement in America and how uh, the Church needs to to step up and kind of have another reformation. The Church needs to uh, grassroots movement kind of um, push forward uh, in this battle against abortion. So I'll get off the phone. I just wanted to see what your thoughts yeah, are along those lines. Jer- Jeremy, st- stay on one more second. Uh, okay. I have yep. not... I've not seen that, so I'm not familiar with the argument that's put forward. Could you give me a, a short summary of, of the argument of that movie? Sure, yeah. So, the, like, uh, um, and I'm not going to call out these people. I don't really know a lot about no, it no. other than having watched the documentary. But uh, the National Right for Life, uh, is it's very weak in, in how it—I guess maybe the best answer is— um, a lot of the pro-life movement wants to be on scientific terms. It wants to be on um, humanistic, like, you know, social justice-type terms that are caring for human beings, and, and it doesn't take a biblical perspective saying, no, we're going to draw a line in the sand and say that we stand on the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand, you know, wanting to pursue, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so the the pro-life movement has to be gospel-centered, otherwise it's going to be weak, it's not going to be successful because it's either got it. and Jesus said you're either for you're either for me or you're against me. You know? Got it. Yeah, so uh short answer to that and thanks Jeremy and, and it's it's my delight to have fellowship with James White and others on Apologia Radio. Honored to call them brothers. So uh in short, based on what you're saying, number one, the average Christian, the average evangelical that's that's involved with pro-life movement is involved purely on biblical reasons or overwhelmingly on biblical reasons, that they believe that baby is alive in God's sight, that that is a child in God's sight, that the baby in the womb is a baby just like the baby outside the womb is a baby, that it doesn't become a baby only when it's born. So pro-lifers, especially those on the grassroots level that are in front of abortion clinics and preaching the gospel and sharing and reaching out, that's where they're coming from. They'll also give a scientific argument. But the vast majority of those voting pro-life are voting out of biblical conviction. As for the various organizations, they have different functions, from what I know. In in other words, if you're arguing this before the Supreme Court, you're probably going to have to come up with other arguments outside of all I can show you from the Bible, that that the baby in the womb is considered a a human being in God's sight. You'd have to have other arguments. So from what I understand, the different groups are all fighting from different perspectives some legally uh, lobbying in different ways, some trying to work with justice appointees, some trying to get people thinking differently in the schools and the scientific community. Ultimately, it's a gospel issue, and ultimately, we have to lead the way. And I believe on the grassroots level, we are. As for the other organizations, I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they operate, many different ones that they stand for. So I, I may get to see this video, and there may be some things in it where I think great points but all my friends that have been on in the front lines of the pro-life movement for decades, and some for 40 years and more, so, I mean, from the early days after Roe v. Wade, they've been, they've been on the front lines. They will work with all the different groups, and Catholic and Protestant will work together, and, and even you'll have an outspoken atheist, and that person will join, and they work together for larger issues and trying to get the vote out and change public opinion and things like that. 
But then on the grassroots level, it's prayer, it's, it's gospel, it's foundations there. So to me, it's, it's both and, as I understand it. Now, if there is real compromise or people departing from a biblical position so they can get funding, that would be a different matter. But if people say, hey, we're mainly a secular organization, or we're mainly trying to influence law, so we just have to go through law, give a legal argument. Or here, we're trying to influence the thinking of, of scientists, so we're giving a scientific argument. Those go hand in hand with others who are bringing the biblical argument. But again, I, I'm only familiar with what you're presenting in representation of this video. All right, we come back. Tell you what, we'll, we'll start with a question about the, quote, Jezebel spirit when we return. We've got one, final, one phone line open. If you want to call 866-348-7884. Right back with your calls. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Hey, just a reminder, mentioned it on yesterday's Thoroughly Jewish Thursday show, but now is a great time if you plan on joining us in Israel, May 2020. As we are getting to our last 40 or so seats on the bus, now's a great, or the second bus, now's a great time to sign up, get your deposit in. That's on our website, askdrbrown.org. You'll find it right on the homepage, or just click on there to find out more. It really is an extraordinary, wonderfully blessed trip of a lifetime. All right, back to the phones we go. Chris in Muskegon, Michigan, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. I saw your interview on the Sid Roth show about your um, Jezebel's Spirit book, mm-hmm. and you said that while you were writing it, it felt like your hands were on fire, and you felt like, like God was like moving on you and leading you. And I'm wondering, what were you trying to imply about your book when you said like your, you felt like your hands were on fire? Like, I wrote, yeah, I wrote with a tremendous when, burden. I was really burdened to right, get the information but, out, really uh, gripped. Yeah. Do you feel like your book is inspired by God? Because, I mean, usually when people write a book, they'll, they'll say, you know, this is what I thought, I read the Bible, and these are conclusions I reached. But when you add things like, I felt like my hands were on fire, I felt God was, like, moving me, it seems like you're trying to imply maybe something a little bit more about the book. No, just just what I said. I really felt moved on to write it. I really felt the Lord wanted me to write. Then all the content has to be examined and examined scripturally. The, the the Bible is the Bible. God's inspired word. Nothing touches that or is in that realm or comparable to it. That stands alone. Period. End of subject. But I certainly hope when a when a pastor is is really burdened by the Lord to preach. And he said, I really felt the Lord inspired me to bring this message that we don't think, are you making that equal to the Bible or claiming special inspiration? God forbid. I mean, I've heard right. endless preachers, but, teachers over yeah. the years say, man, I was bur- my heart's on fire. As I'm, man, my heart's burdened to bring this to you. That's just what I felt. It's just, yeah. man, I, I, just was, I couldn't stop writing. It just 
burden to do. It's always just getting so much pouring into me, so many thoughts and so many insights. And then with everything else, examine it factually and examine it scripturally. It's no different than a pastor getting up and saying, the Lord really laid it on my heart to bring you this message today. If people, if people don't accept your book or believe it, is, are they in a sense um, not heeding and obeying the Word of God? Only if they reject Scripture. If my book accurately presents a scriptural viewpoint and they reject the scriptural viewpoint, they're rejecting the Word of God. If they don't like my book or disagree with it, or that's their prerogative, whatever. It's another book. Okay. There's only... Already. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. Thanks. Yeah, and let, let, me, let, me just, let me just say this, Chris. Obviously, people in different circles hear things differently and say things differently. You know what I'm saying? In, in circles mm-hmm. where I travel, no one would ever dream of asking the questions you're asking, but perhaps in circles where you travel, it's a very logical question. But out of the horse's mouth, no, it's another book, but one I really felt burdened right. And let me just explain. When I'm... Um, uh, I, I, I was working on a translation of the book of Job for my Job commentary. And it was very, very tedious. And it's the Hebrew is very difficult. And, you know, translating it's sacred work because you're, you're trying to convey in, in your language what the original languages say, right? So, you know, you're, you're doing your, but it's, it's a human effort, right? It's the best you can do. It was very, very tedious, difficult. Uh, I was working on a translation of another portion of Scripture and really felt like I felt kind of a different excitement, inspiration, like that the language was coming alive a certain way. But you have to still test it as a translation. You know what I'm saying? You have to examine it carefully. Um, but just to understand this, Chris, if if a pastor, um, uh, let's say there was some tragedy in your city and, and people were agree, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And you were praying, you really felt impressed to, to share a particular thing with your congregation. Like, man, I could not wait to get with you this Sunday. My heart's been burning with this message. Let's open up the scriptures. I want to share what I believe the Lord's given me. Would you have a problem with someone saying that, understanding that everything is tested by scripture and whether the person was really burdened or not can only be evaluated based on scripture? I guess I would, I would just, and preach what the Bible says without jazzing it up with, I feel burdened because the I feel burdened kind of, in my opinion, almost makes it sound like they have to accept everything you're saying because you're saying, like, this stuff I'm saying is directly inspired by God. And when somebody proclaims something they say with the, that kind of hat, it just—I I guess I would just rather somebody say, hey, here's the scripture, and I'm expounding on it. Got it. So then, you wouldn't think that a shepherd—okay, fair, fair enough that you're giving me your perspective. I mean, for me, I would want to know when when someone that is a shepherd of the flock or, or a leader in the congregation, or say a teacher of the Word, said, man, I think this insight is really, really important, really critical— it still has to be tested, but sometimes I feel something more deeply or feel I have an insight from Scripture that is, that is even more worthy of consideration. But you understand my perspective. What any book I write, any book any human being on the planet writes is tested by the Word. 
And and if I claim I was really burdened by this, a lot of the stuff in the book is about, for, for example, I was really burdened to get out some of the research about abortion and some of the examples and some of the comparisons to ancient child sacrifice or the stuff about the rise of witchcraft. I was really burdened to get that out and, and feel God wants me to, to shout that out to the body, wake up and look at this. Now, as to the accuracy of what I'm saying, first we had fact checkers go through you know every reference, every quote. But then beyond that, Chris, anything that makes any scriptural claim, any, you know, for example, quote, Spirit of Jezebel, I'm not talking about the ghost of Jezebel or something like that, saying whatever demonic forces seem to empower this woman Jezebel 3,000 years ago in the Old Testament and 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, those very same powers were at work today, and that, that's what we're referring to. But everything must be evaluated scripturally, and, and then people have to weigh it. And then what I claim to be as factual now, right, in terms of th- these demonic powers working even more forcefully in a greater coalition, then that has to be examined logically based on information. But I appreciate your asking, so you know exactly what I mean by it, and I understand why you would not use that terminology. All right? All righty. Thank you. Have a good day. Uh, you too. Thanks. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just a quick word for those that are not charismatic and would even be in the, the strong, critical charismatic camp. Um, let's see how that little interaction plays out. Because people sent me links of of someone saying, I've now crossed the line, and it's like the Book of Mormon, I'm claiming special inspiration. It's like, what are you talking about? I says, like, I, mean, I, was just, I was be writing late at night and going to go to sleep, and then, I get hit with more ideas. I just had to write. It felt like my fingers were on fire. Writing. Okay, so I got gripped with something. Now you evaluate it. Now you fact check it and evaluate it based on Scripture. That's all. Anyway, but I appreciate Chris asking. So let us see if we have now clarification that comes from this, and this will be dealt with in an ethical, honest, and fair way, or if some hypercritic will now use this to further a false accusation. It, it, just, it helps you see where people are coming from. It's equal weights, equal measures, integrity, honesty, little things like that. And then we have our differences, sure, no problem. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Mark in Brockton, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for holding, and welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you. It's uh, a privilege to talk to you. Uh, I appreciate your balance and everything you deal with. And uh, so I have kind of a two-part question. One is more of a follow-up. So my background, I'm, I'm mid-40s. I grew up in a fundamental, independent, Bible-believing church. So therefore, I was taught my whole life um, and actually, because of that, taught myself um, the fact that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, you know, the what we consider the sign gifts. So I'm just coming to the realization from Scripture that that is not scriptural, that the mm-hmm. gifts are, in fact, still around. Yep. And still talking, um, and still in talking with you or, or hearing from you. So... My thing that I can't wrap my head around at this point is, as I look at church history, as I look at even my background, godly, godly, godly people that love the Lord, pray, even my dad, very good, one of the godliest men I know. 
I can't understand if this is tongues and healing and different things like that, especially the tongues, I guess. If, if that is prayer and people are seeking God's will, I don't understand how these people, how any of us on our side of the coin don't speak in tongues. I don't, if it's the same spirit, I don't know if you can actually answer that. Yeah, Mark, some would simply say that tongues is not for everyone, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, so some receive the gift and others don't. And many charismatics would be at home with that explanation as well. It's, it's not for everyone. But there's another way. So that's, that's one possible way to look at it. Many Pentecostals would say, no, the baptism in the Spirit is for everyone, and the first sign of that is normally tongues, so while you may not have a ministry of delivering messages in tongues, that's only for some, that everyone can, in their private prayer, pray in tongues. So then why doesn't everyone do it? The answer from that perspective, yeah. Mark, would be that many people do not have it in their minds, hearts, or belief system. In other words, it's, it's completely outside of what they're thinking about and asking for, And just like in many ways, there have been blind spots in the church through history, and you're not aware of a blind spot because that's the very nature of a blind spot. So that would be the answer. It's just a blind spot. It's something we never considered, never thought about, never entered into. Or the Holy Spirit is doing a work of restoration around the world and many of the things that have been lost at different times, just like Protestant Reformation and came back and recovered things that much of the church had lost from Scripture, that some of these things are being recovered and restored and that we're living in times of restoration. So it is an increasingly small minority that reject the charismatic gifts for today, while an ever-increasing majority around the world are embracing them. So it could also be in the timing of the Lord. Any of those three explanations, sir. Thank you for the call. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. So, Mark, uh, I don't know if you had a twofold question or if I answered everything you asked. Yeah, go ahead. So along with that, um, again, this is, all that stuff is kind of foreign language to me, and I'm just coming into understanding. Can you just give me a quick example of a typical, uh, say, charismatic church, what it means when you guys prophesy? When What's a typical service if you're prophesying? What does that mean? Yeah, so I don't know what specifically would be typical, but let, let's just say, it's a congregation of, of 150 people, right? So it's not, you know, mega church, and, and maybe there's more room for gifts of the Spirit during a service. So it could be during a time of worship that you really enter into a place of real reverence and awe before the Lord, and you're, you just, it suddenly becomes very quiet, and someone uh, feels that the Lord is moving on them to speak. So it will it can come in any number of different ways. Sometimes there's a mic up front, and you go up to that mic, deliver a message, sometimes you have a pastor or other leaders and you'll share it with them first and they'll give the go-ahead, or in other settings you just speak out. And it could be, you could say, I believe the Lord is saying, or you could just speak in the first person, 
uh, on behalf of the Lord, or you could say the Lord says, and and then the word is tested. And uh, either it, it just, if it's affirmed by the other leaders there, then it may just, you sit and you listen and go on. Maybe someone else then speaks and you go on with the meeting. Sometimes uh, a pastor is going to stop and say, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's, pray about you know what the lord you know we feel the lord was speaking through that and you respond in different ways uh sometimes it's a personal word you know that that someone who's trusted that way can go up to you and say hey you know the lord's laid this on my heart i want to share this with you is this relevant to you you know and ministry comes like that so those are some of the different ways that it would happen but first thessalonians 5 and first corinthians 14 indicate that because anyone can potentially prophesy in the new testament that everything has to be tested Okay, great. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. You're you're very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. We go over to California. Ryan, thank you so much for holding, and welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. I wanted to, uh, yeah, I wanted to go over just three scriptures and then give a supposition. It'll be less than 30 seconds. Go ahead. In Jeremiah 1, when it says, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, the word, uh, Hebrew word yada. And um, in Job 38.7, it says, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Just bear that in mind. And then the third one is John 17.5, and now Father this is Jesus talking, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I once had with you before the world began. I'm leading to believe um, that we were there with Jesus in that glory before the world began, before the dinosaurs, in our uh, spirit form, and I wanted to see if you would if you possibly agree with this, because it's been 30 years and I'm, and I'm starting to see this, that maybe we were there just like the Logos was Jesus and he was placed into baby Jesus. Maybe our spirit was in heaven uh, before the world began with the glory with Jesus. And then our spirit was then put into our baby when we were conceived because our soul is only, you know, whatever our born date, but maybe our spirit is. Yeah. So, so Ryan, let me, me, yeah, let let me respond Uh, with all respect to the journey you've been on with this. I, I, I disagree. I I see no support for the idea that our soul slash spirit was preexistent. God knowing Jeremiah before he was, before he was born, uh, simply means that God had a purpose, that, that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world means in God's sight. He wasn't literally slain, all right? Uh, otherwise, Paul the talks about being... Co- yeah, I'm, I'm aware. The yada, I'm aware. The yada in Hebrew is an active, and when we looked it up in the Strong's and Blue Letter, it meant intimate fellowship. No, no, no. It's, you completely misread it there. Completely misread the it. Yada. I, I, yeah, yada. Yeah, yada, actually. Yeah, it, it, it only yeah, means intimate right. fellowship in a certain case of, like, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and had sexual relations. No, it could either mean God set, set apart. I, I wrote, 
I understand, but I know the Hebrew language. I wrote a commentary on Jeremiah. Okay, I can I can quote the first chapter of Jeremiah to you in Hebrew, right? I'm I'm quite familiar with it. Each word has one meaning in one context. Okay, so okay. It, it you have to you can't read something in. It absolutely does not imply in any shape, size, or form that God had fellowship with Jeremiah before he was born. You wouldn't in a trillion years of reading that in Hebrew come to that conclusion. Rather, God had his eye on him. God had a purpose. God had set him apart. I've set you apart as, as a prophet to the nations. Okay? It uses uh, okay. I set you apart as holy. So it's not referring to that. The reason that Jesus has fellowship with um, the reason that Jesus has fellowship uh, talks about the glory he had before the foundation of the world is because he's eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, not not us. And the sons of God, that's the angels. Genesis, uh, Job 38 goes back to Job 1. Those are the angelic beings, not us. So we, no, we were not there. We did not have a conscious existence and that we were somehow, you know, spirits in heaven forever before we created a certain point and then came down and put in the body. Uh, no, there's no scriptural basis for that, no scriptural foundation whatsoever. I appreciate you asking, but we we are children of time. We we are breathed in, in, into our mother's womb. Our, at, at the moment of conception is the moment of life, all right? And and then we die at a certain point. We're either with the Lord or separated from him. But thank you, sir, for, for your question. I appreciate your process of thinking, but you read a bit too much into those texts. But that's why you called, right? So now you chew on that. Thank you. Um, let's see. Rebecca in Brooklyn, time is short, so please dive right in. And thanks for holding. All right, no problem. Hi, Dr. Brown. Um, my question is regarding the updated changes to Genesis 3.16 and 4.7, where it's changed like um, your, it says your desire shall be for your husband, and it changes to like your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Also, likewise, with 4 7, when it was talking about King, it said contrary to, they changed the contrary to rather than 4. So I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Because yeah, what, what, translation, that. what translation have you seen that in? Uh, ESV, also NT, like more so modern translations. Got it, got it. So, yeah, Not just looking. <laughs> right. Um, let me just look at ESV. Uh, your desire to be contrary to your husband, right? And then NET, you will want to control your husband. Yeah, I, uh, I just wanted to, and those are highly respected translations: ESV, mm-hmm. NET. So it, the the Hebrew is is literally Veli Sheikh and to the woman, he said Shukatech Vuhu Yim So uh, excuse me, and, and to your husband will be your desire and he will rule over you. So the question is, what kind of desire? To say contrary to, uh, to me, personally, seems like a jump. Now, the NET in its notes will explain why it's saying that. Uh, it, to me, the problem is that, that even though the husband's going to dominate her, that she's going to have this pull to, to just, to, you know, she wants a man, right? You know, so to your husband. Right. So your, your desire is for this man, for, for a husband, but he's going to rule over you, and it can be even in an abusive way because this is part of, the, part of the curse. So it would be, in that sense, the, the subservience of the woman to the man in an abusive way 
would be the curse, not male headship, which can be a blessing and intended by God at creation, but rather an abusive thing. So the woman drawn to the man. Um, yeah, so I, I, would not, I would not agree with those translations. Um, the, here, the new JPS. Uh, and remember, she's going to be drawn to the husband, then she's going to have sex with the husband, she's going to have children, and then childbirth is going to be painful. Nonetheless, you're still going to have this drawing but with it, there can be uh, abuse. So uh, I'll make you most severe your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bear children, yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I do believe male headship uh, is a blessing from God and something that God established that is good. But here in the context of the, the curse on the woman, especially with pains in childbearing, it, it takes on a little different essence. Uh, as, as for the fourth chapter... Yeah, I, I would, I, I just don't see the compelling reason for that. Um, yeah, it's sin's lying at the door, right? It's crouching at, at, at the door, uh, literally. Uh, yeah, ve'lecha tshukato, it's you know, almost identical grammatically there. It's desire will be towards you. You can rule over it. This thing's going to be coming after you, but you have the ability to rule over it. So, yeah, I I wouldn't see a need to change that. Let me just see. Um, it desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. NIV, it desires to have you, must rule over it. ESV, it desires for you, but you must rule over it. So here you have almost the identical grammar in 316 and 4.7 translated differently in the ESV in each place. So I would question that. I would say the traditional translations are correct. All right, sorry we're out of time. But I do question those modern renderings, especially of 316. Talk to you on Monday. If you're in Little Rock, Arkansas, I forgot to mention it. See me in Little Rock this Sunday, morning and evening.